I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. My guest today is Forrest Hilton, who teaches history in the graduate school at the Federal University of Bahia in Salvador. He's written many pieces for the LRB blog on Brazilian politics, most recently on the first round of the presidential election. This is his second appearance on the podcast. The first time was in February 2021. Hello, Forrest, and thank you very much for joining me again. Hi, thanks very much for having me back. So Brazilians went to the polls on Sunday, the 2nd of October for the first round of their elections. The front runner was Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, better known as Lula, the left-wing former president. There were hopes that he might clear 50% and win outright in the first round. But in the event, he took just over 48% of the vote. And the right-wing incumbent, Jair Bolsonaro, came in second with just over 43% of the vote, rather better than polls had predicted. There'll be a runoff between those two on the 30th of October. So perhaps, Forrest, you could briefly tell us who they are. Who is Lula to start with? So Luis Ignacio da Silva uh, Lula is, I think it's safe to say, given the near collapse of social democracy across the world, really since the 1990s, that Lula is really the world standard bearer for social democratic politics at this point. He comes out of a major period of strike activity by the industrial working class in the ABC area of Sao Paulo that translated this kind of militant trade unionism into a political party, the Workers' Party, the PT. And at the time it was born, it was very much in touch with kind of revolutionary currents in Latin America from Nicaragua to Cuba, to El Salvador, and so forth. And as it began to win mayor's races and gubernatorial races, it began more and more to acquire experience in governing and distance itself somewhat from the revolutionary tradition and really evolve its own kind of agenda for attaining regional and local power. And meanwhile, Lula ran for the presidency every time beginning with the return to democracy in 1988. So within 10 years, Lula had become Brazil's greatest trade union leader to its kind of leading oppositional political representative. And he ran for the presidency in 88. And then again, in the following electoral cycle, and eventually was elected in 2002, and then reelected in 2006. And when he left office, Uh, His popularity rating was 87%. And under his administration, Brazil posted some of its best economic growth measures. And there was some degree of redistribution of wealth through social programs rather than really any cost to capital per se. And so it was moderate social democratic 
politics that seemed to be working. And of course, it was dependent on the commodities boom in the first decade of the 21st century. Nevertheless, as right-wing politics began slowly to take over Brazil, beginning with the parliamentary coup against Lula's successor, Dilma Rousseff, Lula and the PT were increasingly demonized as sort of corrupt and criminal. And this was happening through judiciary out of Curitiba in the south of Brazil. And a judge named Sergio Moro, who just got elected senator, who managed to put Lula away on trumped-up charges, essentially framed him, such that Lula was in jail until roughly three years ago when he was freed. And so Lula's kind of comeback is about as dramatic as they get. He was a political prisoner, I think, for something close to a year and a half. And it looked incredibly dark for the future of Brazil. And once he was released then the possibility that he could run against and defeat Bolsonaro turned into something more like a certainty. And the question was whether it would be in the first or the second round. So that's a little bit about Luis Ignacio da Silva. And Bolsonaro then, so I was going to say, who, who became president while Lula was in jail, or at any rate, unable to run. Yes. Yeah, so Jair Bolsonaro was a federal deputy from Rio de Janeiro for decades who did absolutely nothing. He did not introduce a single bill, a single piece of legislation while he was in Congress. And he comes out of the army during the dictatorship, but he was expelled from the army for conspiring to commit an act of terrorism in order to make it look like the revolutionary left had done it, sort of false flag operation, but wasn't authorized by the proper people, and he was expelled from the army for this. But he nevertheless has very close ties to the military, and that is part of what has allowed him to govern because he's populated all of the ministries, civilian ministries, with military personnel, and many civilian ministries have simply been run by military men, mostly, under Bolsonaro. So Bolsonaro, in his campaign in 2018, he really emphasized his ties to the most kind of openly fascist elements from Brazil's dictatorial period, you know, torturers. In fact, the very man who tortured Dilma Rousseff, former president who was overthrown in this parliamentary coup in 2016. And, and it was the coup that opened the door for Bolsonaro to become a viable candidate in 2018. And of course, the larger condition of possibility for Bolsonaro's rise is the existence of Trump and of course, Orban in Hungary, since they all look up to him. So Bolsonaro became sort of the chosen figure to defeat the candidate who had to run for the PT, Fernando Adagi from Sao Paulo, because Lula couldn't run. Had Lula been able to run in 2018, he would have defeated Bolsonaro, according to all of the polls, but he was in jail and Fernando Adagi had to run. Fernando Adagi is, you know, an intellectual from Sao Paulo, extremely refined. He's been mayor of Sao Paulo. He did a great job and I believe he won 46% of the vote in 2018, but he was not known nationally 
and sort of chosen at the last minute, which I think was a mistake by the PT because they kept holding out the hope that Lula was going to be able to run against Bolsonaro in 2018, but he was in jail. So Adagi managed to do quite well against Bolsonaro, but in the end, he couldn't win. And Bolsonaro, once in power, as I mentioned, just brought military personnel into government in a way that didn't even occur under the military dictatorship, not to the same degree, because, for instance, the health ministry under the military dictators was never run by generals. And under Bolsonaro, it was. So that's a little bit of who these figures are. But I think one last important detail about both of these people, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva is from the northeast of Brazil and comes originally from Pernambuco. And that's where his largest base and sort of lead is. I'm speaking from Salvador da Bahia and the state of Bahia, which uh, I think has close to 16 million people overall, gave Lula an advantage in the first round of 3.8 million votes. And the Northeast is much darker and much poorer than Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo, where Bolsonaro is coming from. And Bolsonaro has very close ties, he and his sons, to extreme far-right militias that control territory through all sorts of sort of criminal mechanisms. They're completely imbricated in politics, especially in Rio de Janeiro. And that is the kind of nexus that Bolsonaro comes out of. So he's tied to criminal activity, death squad activity, you know, murder for hire schemes, all sorts of corruption schemes that use public office for private enrichment and openly identifies with the most fascist elements of the dictatorship, including Dilma's torturer, who he publicly, uh, what's the word in, in English, elogiado, he publicly uh, lionized this, this torturer. So that's a little bit of who Bolsonaro is and who Lula is. He also, his management or mismanagement of the COVID pandemic led to the deaths of thousands, tens of thousands, avoidable deaths of however many citizens? I believe we're talking hundreds of thousands and getting, because Brazil's death toll was so high and something like maybe half of those deaths could have been avoided. So yeah, he has hundreds of thousands of deaths from the COVID pandemic on his hands. And he's also really closely tied in a way that's not been seen before to evangelical structures of power, which in some cases overlap with these right-wing militias, particularly in Rio de Janeiro, where he's coming from. So Bolsonaro himself, obviously, is not really a religious person or a man of faith, but nevertheless, he has advanced the evangelical agenda while in power and very much like the far right and the Trump base. He's waging constant sort of cultural wars from the presidency to kind of keep his base happy. And similar to Trump, that base is about one in three voters. Then the question is, okay, well, that's about 30 to 33%. What about the other 10%? How do we you know, account for them? But it seems safe to say that roughly one in three, very much like in the US with Trump, they're with Bolsonaro as a matter of faith, and that faith is unbreakable. So the question is, how do you reach these people, I think? when it comes to Bolsonaro? And how is Lula supposed to crack some of these barriers erected by evangelical churches, right-wing militias, 
as you say in the piece, that there were sort of WhatsApp and social media disinformation campaigns telling people that Lula would shut down their churches and and this kind of thing to to get people to vote who who see Bolsonaro as protecting their church as being their savior, if that's not too loaded a word, because they're profoundly misinformed about him. So there's an organization called Evangelicals for the Rule of Law, or for a state of the rule of law. And the leader was saying, listen, you know, Lula's campaign made some initial overtures, but then there wasn't really enough follow through in terms of what his message and his program is for evangelicals. So that when Bolsonaro said, Lula's going to persecute your churches, he's going to favor the official Catholic church, and he's going to persecute and shut down the evangelical churches because it's political. So, you know, you had better vote for me. The Lula supporter from the evangelicals for the rule of law said, we have to be able to to tell our followers or give our followers something in addition to he's not going to close your churches, what he is going to do for you. So that's an incredibly uphill battle that Lula's campaign is waging as we speak, particularly in Minas Gerais and Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro, which are the most populous and wealthy regions of the country. So there, Bolsonaro has much better infrastructure because he has the governor of Rio de Janeiro, Claudio Castro, and he has the governor of Sao Paulo and the governor of Minas. And, you know, these governors, they tell the mayors to get in line and they tell the mayors to make sure they get everybody who holds any kind of public employment. They've got to vote for Bolsonaro. So there is a really systematic effort from the federal government and then the state governments to get Bolsonaro reelected in those key areas where the difference between the two candidates is going to be made mostly there. And as well as that kind of undemocratic coercion, should we say, there's also been a lot of actual physical violence in this campaign, hasn't there? Absolutely. The attacks on Lula supporters by Bolsonaro supporters have just been constant. I mean, one of the most sort of horrific ones was at a PT activist's birthday party. A Bolsonaro supporter came in and killed him at his birthday party with a gun. That was months ago, but these attacks have sort of continued and escalated to the point where almost daily there's some kind of violent attack by a Bolsonarista against a petista or supporter of Lula in Brazil. Violence is up 400% since 2018, the 2018 campaign that is. It runs from physical beatings to homicides and is likely to escalate as the messaging escalates. Because last week, the messaging was that Lula was connected to satanic cults, secretly underground practicing these kinds of things. This goes out in these massive WhatsApp blasts that they purchase, I think, via other countries, if I'm not mistaken. There's a fairly complex and expensive scheme to send out this sort of disinformation. And there are major sectors in addition to the agribusiness and the mining and the logging interests that support Bolsonaro, there are other business sectors that purchase these WhatsApp blasts and help disseminate them. So between the evangelical churches, the what they call the digital 
militias, right? The digital equivalent of these far right wing militias sending out blasts of disinformation that are paid for by important sectors of the business community in Sao Paulo or Rio or Minas. That's a very tough territory to do battle on. I mean, Lula has, he's assembled quite a broad coalition of opponents to Bolsonaro, including business leaders and political leaders who in years past would not have supported him. For example, his vice presidential running mate was actually his opponent in 2006. So there are people who've moved to Lula's side. Certainly. His coalition going into the first round was 10 parties altogether, most of them of the left, some maybe a little closer to center left. But as we head toward the second round, that coalition is considerably larger. Cito Gomez was one of the people who ran this year. And if I'm not mistaken, he won maybe 18% of the vote in 2018 when he ran. So Cito Gomez kind of positioned himself as an alternative to the PT. But of course, there is no real alternative to the PT in terms of elections against Bolsonaro. But Cito Gomez did pretty well for himself in 2018. In 2022, he took just over 3% of the vote, and he was only forecasted to take 6 or 7 but he underperformed dramatically. So his party has, I think, 17 deputies in the lower house, and they are working for Lula's election now. So the schism that existed between the center-left and the left say the PT and Cito Gomez's party, that schism no longer exists. And the same is true with the center right as represented by Simone Tebici. And in many ways, I think she's more important than Cito Gomez and the center left because she has direct uh, contact with sectors of agribusiness and she's very much of the center right, but she's also extremely well-spoken and sort of coherent speaker who can really articulate what her proposals are, what her ideas are. And in the debates in the first round, she was extremely effective at combating Bolsonaro. And she has come out strongly for Lula with no conditions. Everyone expected her to at least demand some kind of ministry. She demanded nothing and just kind of got to work and appeared with Lula at an event I believe, last Friday. So she won, I think, close to 5 million votes. And even if only some percentage of her voters go to Lula in the second round, that would likely be enough for a victory if he were able to maintain his voters from the first round. And that seems likely because 92% of voters right now are already decided where they're headed. Of the remaining 8%, something like 6% are planning to cast blank votes or abstain. And then you have really just 2% left that's undecided. So I think Simone Tebici, as somebody from the center-right, a woman who has significant political differences with Lula, but nevertheless said, look, it's democracy or dictatorship here. That's what's at stake. And everybody needs to rally around the Democratic candidate, which is Lula. And then there are elements within another of Brazil's traditional right-wing party, which is the PSDB, which is very closely associated with the state of Sao Paulo and a kind of continuous right-wing rule in Sao Paulo under this party, which is associated with Fernando Henrique Cardoso, 
and others. And he was president for much of the 90s. That's right. You know, Brazil, to some degree, was brought under control when he was president. But to some degree, you know, most of its public assets were privatized. And he really set the stage for Brazil's deindustrialization and and neoliberal financialization. And that was the agenda of his party. But his party really turned out to be a Trojan horse for this new far right, which really appears to have legs now and a significant presence in the future. But there are elements of this traditional right-wing party from Sao Paulo, which are very much behind Lula. The party is essentially split. The point that I'm trying to make is that Lula's support is incredibly broad right now. And it is really only this new far right that is against him. So Bolsonaro has not picked up any sort of new allies or new parties since the first round. What he has is a really strong hand in Congress where his party won more seats than any other. I think it was 99 seats that they picked up in the lower house and then a number of Senate seats as well. What's different now is that the new far right, including Bolsonaro's own party, as well as any number of other parties, has 190 deputies altogether in Brazil's lower house, which has like a little under 600 representatives altogether. So it's by far the largest block. And Lula's block, as far as I know right now, has something like 125, maybe, compared to 190 for Bolsonaro. And in the Senate, Bolsonaro's hand is even stronger. And this is a really dramatic change from before. Before we continue, a quick message from the New Books Network. Listeners and readers of the London Review of Books know how difficult it is to keep up with all the latest books. The New Books Network publishes over 80 interviews a week with authors and academics about their new books. And among their hosts is the LRB contributor Owen Bennett-Jones. You can find NBN interviews at newbooksnetwork.com or by searching New Books Network in your podcast app. With a library of more than 15,000 interviews in over 120 subjects, New Books Network is one of the most valuable resources on the internet. Because of the what happened in the congressional elections on the 2nd of October, I mean, in terms of getting legislation through, he's going to have a difficult job, even if, even if he wins the presidency. It's hard to see, you know, how he can work with the sort of intransigent forces. Again, I, I reach for the United States analogy because I think the Republican Party has moved in pretty similar directions to these right-wing parties in Brazil. Brazil is just a much more fragmented political environment, and that's why the assembling of these coalitions is so important. But Bolsonaro's coalition just consists essentially of those far-right formations and very little else, and very little interest really in speaking to, to undecided voters or perhaps modifying his message in any way to cater to voters other than his core base. That's, I guess, the mystifying part, is to see Bolsonaro attack women in very openly misogynist ways, repeatedly, journalists, prominent journalists in public. Still, I believe he's got support from, I think he won 41%, or he's polling right now maybe at uh, 41% of women's vote. So again, much like Trump, you know, you wonder how someone who is so openly misogynist and seemingly proud of it is able to win so many women's votes. Lula's got 50% of them, 
and I believe Bolsonaro's got 41%. And many people have said that, you know, women might well decide the outcome of this election, their participation and their voting. I guess we'll see. But my point is, how is it possible that Lula's lead is only 9%, given that he's clearly not only respectful of women, but working with them very actively in the PT, in other parties, and essentially assembling his coalition. You know, the contrast with Bolsonaro is night and day in that regard, and also the way that Lula conducts himself on the debate stage, for instance. Bolsonaro simply can't contain himself when it comes to certain women journalists who ask hard questions without apology to all of the candidates, and he simply is unable to control himself such that he has asked that one of the journalists be barred from the debate that's coming up with Lula because, you know, he knows he'll lose control if he has to discuss with this woman and he's afraid that that, you know, might cost him some votes. So he doesn't want to have her on the program. Yeah, I mean, apart from anything else, the lack of self-control is is so frightening. I mean, there's something else that he's, I think I saw him saying, there's some video in which he appears to be saying that he would eat an Indian. Is that right? Talking about indigenous people who are currently victims of essentially genocidal policies in the Amazon with their land being taken away from them and, and destroyed to make way for mining and logging and, and agribusiness interests. And Bolsonaro's response to that is, you know, cannibalism is not too much for him. His disrespect and indeed hatred of indigenous peoples is something that he doesn't attempt to conceal because I guess nine out of 10 of his leading campaign contributors come from the agribusiness sector. And that's where his lead over Lula is really the strongest in um, the West the center west, and then the south. Agribusiness, of course, uh, refers to soy, I suppose, corn for biofuels. You know, these are the principal interests. And all sorts of farming and mechanized agriculture, as well as mining and logging, all of which uh, destroys indigenous habitats, displaces indigenous peoples, and ultimately does lead to genocide. Bolsonaro is a kind of openly genocidal leader in that sense. And when conflict broke out with the Ukraine, his response was, okay, we can't get some of the stuff we need to make fertilizer from Russia, but we can get it from indigenous lands. So let's get to it. His attitude towards gold mining, much of which is carried out illegally, just like logging, and indeed, just like the expansion of private property, much of it is done through violence, direct or threats of violence and displacement. So that's how things are in places like Mato Grosso, Mato Grosso do Sul, Acre, Rondonia, uh, Goiás. And these are the areas where he has the strongest support. So I guess you could say that there's a pretty intense settler colonial mentality and much of it is light-skinned, but much of it is mixed and brown-skinned. So you can't really speak of it in terms strictly of, say, white supremacy. But at the same time, it's difficult to escape the racial component or dimension of, you know, the genocide of indigenous peoples throughout the Amazon. 
And that doesn't include regions where Lula, you know, performed very well. And, you know, the left has won some governorships in the Amazon. The Amazon is extremely difficult to govern and control because of these sort of entrenched illegal interests of mining, logging, and uh, sectors of agribusiness that operate outside the law, as well as uh, the PCC, which is the principal organized crime group in Brazil, the only one that has a real sort of national and international presence. They control many of the Amazonian border states and territories, and therefore agribusiness and kind of cocaine trafficking and far right-wing militias, they all kind of converge with politics in these areas. So in that way, you know, there's a very large stretch of Brazil that's a lot more like Colombia than it is, say, the northeast of Brazil. I mean, it sounds as if, you know, maybe there's very little that in the face of those kinds of interests and that kind of power and violence, there's, there's not much the government can do. But under Lula and, and Dilma and under the PT government, right, deforestation was drastically reduced, wasn't it? So there is, I mean, and there's a sense in which, I mean, the whole world, we all have a stake here, a massive interest in this, because in the last few years, the Amazon has gone from being a net absorber of carbon dioxide to being a net emitter of carbon dioxide because of the, the amount of logging and burning that's taking place. And if the Amazon goes, then, <laughs> then we're, we're all fucked, basically. I mean, there is international interest in this, and the, the US government has expressed support for Lula and, you know, they've, and all the rest of it. But at the same time, there's, it seems slightly bizarre to me, the relative complacency about the threat that Bolsonaro poses to, <laughs> to everybody on Earth, that in his way, it's as great as the threat that Putin presents with his nuclear missiles. With every month that Bolsonaro's in power, more of the Amazon becomes savanna. As you mentioned, the effects are, are going to be worldwide. So if Bolsonaro comes to power again, he is going to implement a dictatorship. They have a pretty clear plan of how they're going to do that. Part of their plan would involve impeaching justices of the Supreme Court. And so essentially purging the judiciary and then putting their own people in. And then it's kind of lights out. And that seems to be the plan. So the risk of a kind of military fascism in government here in Brazil, not only for the next four years, but the idea would be to perpetuate that regime. And they're already talking about mechanisms through which re-election could take place again and again and again. So that's certainly the plan, uh, should Bolsonaro get re-elected. That said, it's unlikely. No one since Brazil returned to democracy in 1988 in the elections, has ever come back to win in the second round. So it would be unprecedented were Bolsonaro to make up the gap that was, you know, let's see, he took, I think, 43.2 and Lula took 48.8. So if I'm not mistaken, that translates into some something like 5 million votes that uh, Bolsonaro would need to pick up in order to defeat Lula in the second round. It would be unprecedented were that to happen. And it's hard to see where those 5 million votes would come from if you really only have 2% that's undecided and then 6% that's either going to abstain or cast a blank vote. You know, the math in terms of where's Bolsonaro going to get these 5 million votes, it, it doesn't really seem to add up. But the plan is 
to see if they can flip Minas Gerais, right? Minas Gerais is the so-called breadbasket of Brazil and was once a highly industrialized region. There's a lot of deindustrialization everywhere in Brazil. Minas Gerais gave Lula an advantage of 600,000 votes in the first round of the election, and that was much less than forecast. Now, there's a governor in Minas, this guy named Zema, and he's already met with all the mayors, 600 of them, and told them, you know, you better get out the vote for Bolsonaro in the second round or else, and you better tell your people the same thing. So the kind of full court press to flip Minas is on. Bolsonaro, I think, is hoping to to turn a disadvantage of 600,000 votes into an advantage of like 2 million or 2.5 million. Presumably Lula is, is working hard against that at the same time. Exactly. That seems to me to be sheer fantasy on the part of Bolsonaro and his team. They might get closer to Lula in a best case scenario for them, but the idea that they're going to flip Minas by a huge margin, that seems to me to be fantasy, especially given that 92% of the people who've been polled said they're already decided their votes, you know, they already know who they're voting for. Were the congressional polls more accurate? I mean, were those 99 seats, were those predicted or was that a surprise as well? So similar to what Trump managed to do for some of his candidates who essentially were nobodies from nowhere, but once they had his seal of approval, you know, they were catapulted into Congress. That's what happened with Bolsonaro and and some of his candidates, really. They came from out of nowhere, many of them, and they were not forecasted to do very well, many of them. So there were a lot of surprises in the in the congressional races and perhaps even in, in some of the gubernatorial races. But again, no matter how uphill the terrain is in terms of cracking these information bubbles run by evangelicals and right-wing militias and uh, backed by, by businessmen and the digital militias, uh, which are run by Bolsonaro's sons, Lula has been campaigning in Sao Paulo, in Minas, in Rio. And, uh, you know, there was a huge sort of mass event in Minas over the weekend that Lula held. So the PT has its own infrastructure in Minas, and the right wing doesn't, doesn't in fact, control the vote the way it wishes it could. So it's fine to tell all these mayors to, to get out the vote or else, and the mayors can tell their people. But there's, that's, there's still only so many of them, and probably most of them voted Bolsonaro already. So it's very difficult to see where he's going to get the 5 million votes. I keep coming back to that, but it's really a lot. And um, whereas his coalition has stayed the exact same size with essentially the exact same faces, you know, Lula's has just gotten much broader and there are new faces supporting him who, who really have ties to different sectors of society. So as you mentioned, Lula has the backing of most of Brazil's business community. And certainly, I think the, the bankers in Sao Paulo are betting on him. His vice presidential candidate, uh, Gerardo Alquimim, who comes out of right Sao Paulo politics and opposed Lula in 2006. And, and as governor of Sao Paulo, he and, he and Lula were very much, I think, at loggerheads. But Alquimim was one of these people on the center right who saw that, you know, there's, there's really just a, a choice between dictatorship and democracy, and the only chance for a democratic victory in, in Brazil is Lula. You know, Brazil's business class very much wanted some kind of third way between Lula and Bolsonaro. 
And they, they kept, you know, one after another. Simone Tabici was one of their choices to some degree. Uh, but they, they couldn't really find anybody, you know, who, who was suitable, except perhaps to keep Lula from winning in the first round. So, you know, the, the search for a third way proved to be absolutely illusory. Um, and, and it really does come down to, to Lula and, and Bolsonaro. So Alcamin saw this you know, a very experienced figure in Brazilian politics. He saw this early on and sent signals that he would very much be willing to take part in a, in a electoral campaign. So, you know, he is Lula's tie to the Sao Paulo business community, to sectors of, of finance capital that are extremely important. And like the U.S. government, there are many business sectors in Brazil that see Lula as someone who can bring stability, order, some degree of predictability, and therefore essentially favorable conditions for capital investment. With Bolsonaro in power, Brazil is seen as quite risky. And there are sectors of capital that are benefiting from the destruction of the Amazon. And there are other sectors of capital that are opposed to the destruction of the Amazon. So, you know, Lula certainly has assembled all of the quote-unquote green capitalists around him. And there's no question that a lot of money could be made under Lula. So everybody kind of knows that, I think, in, in the business community. Agribusiness is another story because, as you said, when Lula was in power, uh, there was a real effort to assert federal government sovereignty all through the Amazonian region, right up to the borders with Colombia and Peru. And that really kind of puts a layer in between organized crime in, say, Colombia and Peru, and then uh, the, the PCC on the, on the frontier, on the border, all through the Amazon. When there was a federal government presence there, uh, it really threw a wrench into the works of organized crime, which was in league, right? The cocaine exporters are in league with the miners and the loggers, and they fund the political campaigns as well. Yeah, and course, I mean, Peru and Colombia, I mean, the governments have changed. I mean, Colombia, for the first time ever, has a, now has a left-wing president who won unexpectedly in the second round, Gustavo Petrov. So, did, I mean, how does those, those political changes on Brazil's borders, how do they affect it? I think that the possibility for international cooperation in trying to bring some degree of state presence and government control to those areas uh, is, is quite promising. And, and also quite likely. And Petro has declared, you know, that this is an international problem and has even agreed to collaborate with the U.S. government Southern Command to patrol these Amazonian border regions. Um, so certainly if Petro is willing to work with the United States, he'd be thrilled to work with uh, Lula and Brazil to jointly patrol their border. And, and given that the United States said, hey, we basically want Lula for the same reasons that capital in Sao Paulo wants Lula. You know, it's a much more stable, predictable investment climate with Lula in charge than it is with, with Bolsonaro. You never know what Bolsonaro is going to do. So in the end, the far right is an extremely powerful and growing minority. And how far it can grow or how much it can extend its power is really an open question. But I don't think their chances are very good of winning the second round. And although Lula would have a difficult time getting legislation through Congress, 
he is incredibly savvy, in fact, at sort of peeling off individual people, even from Bolsonaro's own party, around different pieces of legislation to get them through, and certainly willing to do the horse trading necessary to get those people on board. So Lula as president might even be able to break the sort of block of intransigence and and get some members of the far right on board with some of his proposals. But more importantly, he can use the presidency essentially for pedagogical purposes. And so the presidency can combat all sorts of fake news, disinformation, all of which, of course, depends on on an uneducated population. We haven't really talked about how education fits in to all of this in terms of who believes what about the country. But were Lula to win, one of the things he said persistently is that, of course, you got to go back to to investing in education, which was one of the great successes of of his administration and to some degree of, of Dilma Rousseff's administration. They transformed the educational system in Brazil to some degree, especially public higher education by introducing affirmative action measures that are extremely important to democratizing education in Brazil and allowing darker-skinned people access to institutions which have mostly been for lighter-skinned, wealthier people. And Lula and Dilma did that to a large degree. And part of the backlash against the PT was, in fact, a backlash against people from the poorest sectors of society, Uh, with the least advantages, getting the supports they needed to advance through institutions and become salaried professionals of the middle class. There was a significant degree of upward mobility for people from the poorest sectors, let's say, earning up to like two minimum wages. And then, of course, that was dramatically curtailed. It actually sort of started under Dilma with a certain level of austerity as the, the commodity boom turned to bust. And then, you know, Bolsonaro and Michel Temer, when, when after they overthrew Dilma, they introduced a ceiling for social spending. So you couldn't invest beyond X percentage, I believe it's 20% in education or healthcare. So one of the things that Lula has pledged to do is repeal the ceiling so that more money can be devoted to education and healthcare as well, because that's another strength of uh, the Brazilian public healthcare system which was brought into being through the Constitution in 1988 and is really a model for the world when it comes to, say, vaccinating a large amount of people in a very short period of time. That happened uh, under Lula and Dilma. So I think that healthcare and education are considered incredibly important by most Brazilians. And anybody who's looking to move up in Brazilian society, uh, which is almost impossible now, is looking to education. And there's a racial component to this as well, particularly here in the Northeast, where most of the poorest people are black and brown. Um, And, you know, public, a decent public education and decent public health care is about all there is in terms of equalizing factors in Brazil, where I think it takes like 11 generations or something to escape from poverty. There's still three weeks to go till the second round. So just to, to finish now, I mean, how is the mood in Salvador? Well, I think people are expecting a Lula victory, 
And I think the question is here in Bahia is just, can he increase his lead over Bolsonaro in Bahia from say 3.8 million to, you know, a little over 4 million or something like that. But I, I, I expect that the Northeast will come out as strong or stronger for Lula as it did in the first round. And um, we'll see what he's able to do in, uh, in Minas and Sao Paulo and Rio. But I guess the, the, con- the concluding thought for me is that there's just so much at stake in Brazil right now and what happens politically, socially, economically. And you have really powerful and frightening kind of fascist movements and parties making their way through the institutions and doing so pretty effectively. And on the other hand, a dramatic movement, democratic movement in the broadest sense against that. And it looks like the democratic tide is likely to prevail for now. Forrest Hilton, thank you very much. You can read Forrest Hilton's pieces on Brazil and Colombia on the LRB blog. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilborn, and the music is by Kieran Brunt.